Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box on FBI Radio. Hi, my name is Kate Saab and you're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 FM, streaming online on the website fbiradio.com or listening retrospectively wherever you get your podcasts. This is Out of the Box. Every Thursday at 1 p.m., we take a deep dive into our guests' record collection, the stories from their life, and how those things move together. I'd just like to first acknowledge that I'm broadcasting from unceded Gadigal land, and I'd like to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present, and recognize the ongoing colonial violence committed across this country. Out of the Box is a show where we dive deep into the guests' record box and pull out the stories of music that they love. First Nations people have been telling stories across country for millennia, and I'm so privileged to be able to do that for you here today. I would like to extend that respect to any First Nations person listening in, wherever you're tuning in from in so-called Sydney, the land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I'm here on the mic today with Isabella Antonu. Izzo is a political activist with interest in renters' rights, migration, the arts, and music. You may have come across her TikToks on renters' rights and landlords a few years ago. Izzo has recently come back to Eora from Germany, where she took part in an artist residency at the art store in Kalb, writing and researching artists and mutual aid and how these things do or can work together. That's enough of a CV for now. Um, I want to get into the good stuff. Thank you so much for being here today. No, thank you for having me, Kate. And also, what a great summary of all the things I've done. <laughs> like, it's really funny hearing it back like that. It's like, oh, I did do that. Who let me? Someone. They shouldn't have. And I'm so glad that they did. <laughs> um, you know what? Let's just get stuck right into it. Like I just said, you know, most people will probably recognize your voice and your face on the cameras, um, <laughs> from your presence as a renter's rights advocate on TikTok, mm -hmm. you know, with quite a few of your videos going viral and reaching a really wide audience. Was there a specific moment or experience that had uh, that you had as a renter that made you realize that how cooked the system is? Well, there's actually quite a few. The one I like to tell actually really nicely coincided with the uh, state election last year. So for people who weren't aware, uh, one of the reasons why you might also know my face is if you live in the inner west areas, you might have seen a bunch of giant posters of it um, plastered around. I was actually uh, the Greens candidate for uh, Summer Hill back in 2023, almost coming up to a full year anniversary. I'm still in recovery mode from such a very intense period of my life. Um, and look, I was already very much staunchly for renters' rights. I've been renting in the inner west my entire adult life. I've always been working ridiculous hours, ridiculous jobs to try and juggle whatever I was doing and paying my rent, whether that was studying or actually trying to find meaningful work. Um, and the great irony was uh, on the day I was supposed to announce my candidacy, uh, I got an email from my real estate agents, essentially, uh, hiking me up $100 extra a week. Wow. So that was a 28% increase. Uh, no reason really beyond the fact is we can. And I just had to really sit in the fact that I can't do anything about that. I'm not in a position to fight that. And I'm someone who you'd say would have reasonable resources. I technically had, you know, access to a whole political policy to try and, you know, reframe what was happening to me. But I, I couldn't do anything and I just had to cop it. I could have tried to fight it, but that didn't mean anything. I could have been uh, evicted they, for uh, no reasons because that's something that they can do. They could have just made my life more difficult. And it was just, like I said, such a busy part of my life, a period of my life that it, it just wasn't worth it. And I had no power in that situation. I was completely at their mercy. 
Um, and when did your work as an activist and organizer transition into electoral politics? Completely accidentally, which I think is the best way. <laughs> uh, no, so I've been a very politically engaged person my entire life. Uh, you know, growing up uh, with uh, in a bicultural household, I'm a queer woman. It I didn't really get a much of a choice if my life was political or not. It's inherently already politicized, and I'm very fortunate to have parents who may not have had formal political education, but were very open and talked about things on the news as they happened and their thoughts and their feelings and really let me in to kind of look at that process. Um, during uni, of course, I got into kind of, you know, light activism. Uh, funnily enough, though, the thing that really pushed my, I guess, unionist streak was working in publishing. Anyone who's worked in the arts will know, like that is the most radicalizing experience you can ever have. Um, essentially, uh, I was seeing firsthand the exploitation within what I thought was my dream job. Uh, the way that it actually transitioned into, I guess, electoral politics was I was continuing to do small bits of activism, small bits of you know community organizing, and it was in 2020 uh, when I actually was made redundant from my job, and I sat with myself. And thankfully, during that period, you know, we saw the government actually step up. We saw a social contract being upheld uh, and welfare was at a livable rate. I could actually sit and think and go, what do I actually want to do? What do I care about? And how am I going to put my money where my mouth is? And that's when I, you know, started organising uh, within this um I guess, policy network that was run by Ava Cox and some good friends of mine. And that kind of ballooned out into me exploring other avenues. I ended up joining the Greens because I felt like they aligned with where I was at with the idea of, you know, if this isn't the way for me, it's not, and that's okay. But I ended up uh, putting my hand up for a few things, joining the community that's centered around. Uh, and then one thing led to another. And I think it was the federal election of 2022 I was like, oh, actually, maybe I can do this. Maybe I, if I had the backing, this is something I'd want to put my energy towards because we could see, at least in the Queensland results that were coming in during 2022, that they could do something different. They could do mutual aid. They could do the activism that I cared about and have it not feed into electoral politics, but be upheld and supported by electoral politics. And were there any artists that you listened to for the first time during this campaign or coming, kept coming back to you when you were sort of starting your grassroots activism? Yeah. So there was, it was really funny. I did have my hype playlist, um, which in no way would I say these were political songs at all, um, including like Charlie XCX is hot in it. But that was more of a, just a personal <laughs> moment. You've got to get motivated. I think so. I think so. Uh, and we had such like a high femme energy for that campaign. It felt like it just naturally uh, lent in. Um, I got really into the Crane Wives, actually. And what else I got really into was um, Paloma Faith, uh, which is a bit of an odd one for a lot of people. But She's great. She's great. But I also got really into uh, an artist that I'm going to talk about later as well, and we'll get to that when we do, but uh, Marina Safdie. I got into a lot of uh, music that was, I guess, culturally significant for me, and I found a lot of power in that because I felt like I was then adding to a broader kind of tapestry of work and cultural care. And this first song that you've picked sort of really kicked off your interest into political music within the Australian musical canon. 
Um, it's such a powerful track, both lyrically and sonically. Could you tell me about what first grabbed your attention with the track Mud by Mud Rat? Yeah, sure. So as we kind of know, I'm a bit of a TikTok tragic. Um, I'm chronically online. <laughs> it's so bad, but it's so good. And now there's an immortalized version of me in a Yahoo Finance article about it. Um, but yeah, so I was doing my usual scrolling, came across this kind of very intense, I guess, like punk anger that... I hadn't seen it in a little bit. Like, of course, you know, from like older stuff, but not in kind of a 2023, 2024 context. Um, and it was just so aggressive in a way that I felt was so righteous and interesting. Um, kind of when the track ended up actually getting released, I listened to the whole thing and I couldn't help but be reminded of actually like Green Day's Holiday, which sounds a bit weird and maybe is showing my age a little bit. Um, but I just remember that song being so... Um, I guess, critical of the Iraq war uh, in the early 2000s. And there's a great uh, video essay by Lindsay Ellis. Shout out for people who know her and her work. Wish she'd come back to YouTube, but that's fine. Um, talking about protest music in the United States. And this was one of her like penultimate examples of it, I guess, uh, for mostly millennials and even Gen Xs. Um, Essentially, of course, it's talking like people often think about, you know, American Idiot as being, you know, the big protest song there. But when you actually sit and listen to Holiday as an adult, it really kind of hits home I, the distrust in government that really kicked off around that time. And that similar energy really just kind of came through. So, of course, not stylistically similar, but thematically similar in that way, especially as we're seeing on what's happening in Palestine and our own MPs and politicians completely failing us and going against what the community is asking for, what their constituents are asking for. Well, here it is right now on FBI Radio 94.5 FM. You're tuned in to Out of the Box with me, Kate Sarp. Izzo and I are going to be here right after this. This is Mud by Mud Rat. Keep it locked. You're tuned in to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with me, Kate Sarp. I'm joined by Isabella Antonio. We're chatting about all things activism, all things music, protest, you name it. Out of the Box is a show on FBI where we take a deep dive into our guests' record box, pull out the stories, and listen to the music that they love. Izzo, we're just going to keep going. I love that. We're trudging along. After that big, like, pop punk. Yeah. We're bringing it back. We're bringing back Australian pop punk single-handedly. We are so <laughs> um, You literally have so much going on. Could you summarize the work that you did in regards to migration policy? Yeah, sure. So I previously used to work at an organization called uh, Mayans, uh, uh, Multicultural Youth Affairs Network, New South Wales. And our whole role was supporting uh, young recently arrived, so migrants and refugees. Uh, essentially, my role was their policy lead. So I would take the lived experience of these young people and actually turn it into policy recommendations. And it's the kind of the really nitty gritty evidence building that, you know, a lot of political spheres don't like to actually deal with the actual lived reality of the policies that they implement. Um, and actually having to recognize that people in these situations often know what's best for them and have that autonomy. Um, my research actually looked at how Australia can't 
have a meaningful migration or a settlement policy or system because it is a colonial state, because it has not actually dealt with the fact that it has displaced its own First Nations population? How is it going to deal with the displacement of others who often have been displaced due to Australians' own actions uh, across the global south and ex-colonised countries as well in partnership with, you know, the US, the UK, just to name a few. A big part of what I study in philosophy is, you know, I love looking at justice um, and just other kinds of forms of political activism. And I'm especially curious about your work. I mean, like you just mentioned, due to so-called Australia's history and current colonisation of the land. Do you think a state like Australia has a right to exclude prospective immigrants? No. Yeah. Absolutely not. Um, An interesting thing that came up in my research was how consistent Australia has been in its attempt to shirk its responsibilities, especially to take in refugees, going back since essentially Federation. Um, Throughout, you know, World War I and World War II, actually, there's continual asks from uh, the United Nations and all these uh, international, I guess, uh, coalitions asking Australia to take on uh, a certain level of refugees. And Australia finds time and time again um, ways to kind of circumvent that responsibility. Uh, I kind of coined the term like autocratic policy around it because it does it in a really interesting way to kind of turn a very long thesis and two years of work into a very quick summary. Uh, Essentially, uh, Australia purposely is very reactive in the way it treats its migration policy as a way to almost not have to think about a lot of long-term planning. Uh, and this is, of course, when I talk about uh, reactive uh, planning around uh, migration policy, I'm also talking about you know things like Operation Sovereign Borders. Uh, and I spent a lot of time kind of just tracking the history and how that connects to colonial policy and actually how it feeds into these other ideas of, um, I guess, autocratic governance uh, that Elizabeth Dunn talks quite heavily about. But I can also recognise I'm getting very, very into the weeds on the academia. No, no, that's the point. (laughs) And for people who are listening that aren't really aware of what autocratic means, do you want to just give a brief summary? Absolutely. So it comes from the term ad hoc, essentially coming as it comes up, reactive, uh, no real thought, no real plan. Um, You know, it's one of the reasons why we've got such a big backlog in our migration caseload as well, which is something that is continuously being talked about in the settlement sector. Um, Unnecessarily so as well, a lot of it coming down to resourcing issues. And I mean, broad strokes here, but do you think justice requires open borders? That's an interesting question. I guess, what do we feel is justice? So do we mean in the sense of if Australia has been involved in conflicts Uh, we owe it to the people displaced by those conflicts. I don't actually know because I think there's something actually bigger and more restorative at work there. And I would say we should be questioning why we're in those conflicts in the first place. What are we doing to cause these people to be displaced? So I think it's a bigger question than that. And I mean, how do you see mediums like music being influenced by migration? Absolutely. Well, we've got the very obvious answer, of course, people from migrant backgrounds uh, being very politically placed. And we're seeing, at least at the moment, so much momentum building from a lot of, um, you know, uh, people of colour, artists of colour. I think, too, you know, the recent collaboration that just released, uh, We're All Free, which is this great piece of work between, you know, 26 predominantly First Nations and uh, POC creatives. And I want to speak about that important solidarity between 
recent migrants and people from migrant backgrounds and First Nations people as well. Um, I want to talk about like, you know, the work of Serene, uh, who was actually just on Watermelon Juice last month on FBI. Um, it's a great time to celebrate these amazing works that kind of come out of that political space uh, and get righteously angry. Uh, the, actually, the other song I brought in today uh, is actually aggressively um, talks about the Tamper Affair. Uh, the Tamper Affair, for those who aren't aware, was essentially um, a series of refugees who were stranded in 2001 um, off the coast of Australia, having to be uh, picked up after the boat was compromised. Uh, essentially, it was used as a political narrative tool uh, by the Howard government, everyone's favourite government, uh, for wanting to see where things really go wrong for Australian politics in a lot of ways. Uh, but I literally spent the last few years kind of held up at a desk and a laptop reading about how this very specific event and the way narratives were crafted about the Tampa affair has actually flowed on to how we talk about migration issues, refugee issues, asylum seeker issues. It's where we see this fundamental shift into, um, you know, the culture wars around what should not be up for that kind of debate, in my opinion, these kind of very racialized unhelpful conversations uh you know it's the same kind of pipeline that led to you know the Cronulla riots being justified by radio hosts and what we're even seeing play out today um it's a great Aussie rap track I'm actually usually not a fan of Aussie rap I will be 100% okay. honest and I know that is a rogue take and I'm always ready to be proven wrong but essentially this song speaks to what so much of my work has essentially come out of um, and my professional body of work is kind of nicely summed up. So it's 77% by The Herd. That's the track we're going to listen to right after this. Could you tell me more about like the lyricism specifically uh, within the context of Australia's stance on migration? Yeah. I don't think I can actually give a whole kind of breakdown on that, I'll be honest. <laughs> well, that's also like a really big one as well, because Australia has such a long history of migration. Uh, lyricism around this is talking about how people reacted to the Tampa affair, going back to, you know, what were the narratives were being pushed at the time, how it was used as a political um a moment and that many people say, uh, many political commentators say actually ended up letting John Howard win uh, an election that he actually wasn't supposed to win uh, later that year as well. And it's important to note is later that year, uh, the tragedy of 9-11 did happen. And then that was just built upon to really build this fear of this us versus them, this outside, this inside, this need of concept of strong borders. Um, and that's what the lyricism here is talking about. It's talking about accountability. It's talking about like everyday people interacting like this it's talking about that 77 percent of people actually really responded quite negatively to the tamper affair here it is right now on out of the box on fbi radio 94.5 fm 77 percent by the herd Izzo and I are going to be chatting after this. Don't go anywhere. The sheep's back, now the sheep ride you. If this is how it's going to be, don't call me true blue. I denounce my ancestors. Wounds still fester. If you say that, so I suggest you wake up. Wake up. This country needs a fucking shake up. Wake up. These cunts need a shake up. Wake up. This country needs a fucking shake up. Wake up. These cunts need a shake up. Wake up. This country needs a fucking shake up. Wake up. These cunts need a shake up. Wake up. This country needs a fucking shake up. Wake up. You're tuned in to FBI Radio 94.5 FM. You might also be listening on the website, fbiradio.com, or retrospectively, wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is Out of the Box with me, Kate Sarp. I hope you are having a good whatever time of day it is, no matter if you're listening live or later on because you can't get enough. I'm joined by with Isabella Antonio. We're chatting about so many things. We're going through your music, what you like. Uh, we've just heard 77% by The Herd. Um, and we're going to keep rolling. Love to hear it. Let's go. <laughs> your academic career has been really wide in its scope, starting off with an undergrad um, in English literature and language, mm-hmm. and then moving into a research master's. How has your creative practice as a writer intersected with your work as an activist and a political candidate? Oh, that is such a good question. I love these types of questions Um, because for me, they are one and the same. Um, Arts is always political. I don't see how anyone can meaningfully try and pull those two apart. It's so central to what I do. My, I guess, creative fiction writing is very much informed by my politics. And a lot of it is about uplifting stories of traditionally marginalised, particularly women and feminine identifying people. Um, The stories, not just that I wish I had when I was younger, but the ones that are truly stomped out by not just capitalism in terms of like what does and doesn't sell, but also what is just deemed is unimportant or frivolous because of, you know, misogyny, uh, patriarchy, uh, what is considered appropriate within the confines of the colony and how all these things intersect. Um, Like I said, I went from um, an undergrad in English literature because that is what I thought I wanted to do. I thought that was the only thing that I wanted to do. And as I started working in the arts and I started creating more, I realised that I had such these limits on me and I wasn't quite sure where they were from. It wasn't until I really kind of keyed into my university degree and I'm very fortunate to have been uh, in a position where one, I could go to uni, um, even though I essentially had to work full time to support myself, but I still got to go and I went to Sydney Uni of all places, which is, you know, a hub of privilege and really you do get to see these things kind of play out in real time. I know. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, it's, it's a great learning curve uh, for a lot of, uh, a lot of us. Um, I was having racialized experiences on campus that really made me realize where other people put me and where my power wasn't uh, for the most of it. Uh, but you know what, being at university there doing an arts degree actually gave me a lot of the language and the tools to understand that position uh, and the ways that I do have access to power um, in a lot of ways. Like I'm still someone whose first language is English. I was born and raised here. I um, have a white Australian mother. I um, went, I'm very well educated, quote unquote, of a master's degree. Um, I'm fair skinned. Like these are all the intersections of power. And those are the things that kind of come out in my work and how they have helped me. Um, and I can probably say this quite confidently, I've been very fortunate to do these amazing pieces of art because of where I've been sitting. Um, the great thing is as well about, you know, having the language, having the tools and having that time when I was made redundant, which is in itself a very interesting time in my life, um, and deciding what was important to me, which of course was women, uh, migrant women, um, and the arts, I was able to come to my thesis, which of course looks specifically at how refugee women from the Swana region um, created knowledge production and how these kind of art zones that they are put into is like a little microcosm of the broader settlement system, the way it uh, automatically assumes things about their experience, about their creativity, about their work 
there's this kind of audience um, anticipation that we just have to assume that, oh, well, because they've had this experience of displacement, then all their work must be about that. When that was far from the case of the women I was fortunate enough to interview. Um, being, you know, in that master's program actually meant that I was able to be introduced to some amazing artists, creatives, workers in the arts. Um, and that's what started my, you know, work with Refugee Art Project uh, and uh, Hunar, which is an art and academic collective, which really crystallised how my creative work and my academic work were able to be interconnected. So Hunar does a lot of work around um, art in conflict areas um, and the concept of conflict more generally. Uh, they held an amazing symposium and um, exhibition last year. And, you know, my work with Refugee Art Project was the thing that let me go to Germany in 2022 as part of Documenta. Wonderful. And for people who are unfamiliar with SWANA, the acronym, it's Southwest Asian North African. Um, and just more about your work researching the SWANA region. What is so unique about the art? Yeah, so of course, um, I'm very personally connected as a Cypriot woman. We sit within that SWANA zone. So all the women that I spoke to had all come to Australia. Now, the reason why I actually chose uh, that region, not just because of my own personal um, connections to it, but the way women from the Swana region are actually talked about, the way that all the women's art was connected was actually because it wasn't connected. It was so different. Their political reasoning behind their work was so different, ranging from I see myself as an activist to uh, a young woman who draws amazing horror works just because she thinks it looks cool. Hell yeah. And she's very talented at it. And it's so cool. And if you can, look her up. Her name's Tabs. She's on Instagram, T-A-B-Z. Um, and that was actually the beauty is the diversity and the difference and the fact that none of them sat in a box. And the way audiences and even funders wanted to extract these kind of, you know, um, exploitative narratives out of them to make, you know, people feel better. It wasn't there. They weren't going to give it in. Um uh, we know, we're seeing this at play now, the way we talk about uh, Swana women is either as victims or as activists. There isn't this huge ability to just be in the middle and exist and live and have this politics of just living and being and actually rejecting this hyper-political lens on ourselves. And that was what a lot of this work and research was essentially communicating. And Radio Alhara, uh, it's a community radio station based out of Bethlehem in Palestine. Could you talk to me a little bit about the importance of Radio Ahara in regards to its resistance in, you know, its broader context? Absolutely. So uh, for people who have any understanding of what it's like uh, in Palestine, in the occupied territories, uh, especially the ability to build solidarity internationally is immense. The ability to share information uh, and to share uh, art is huge. We're seeing this happen right now on the way Instagram is a major platform and social media is how we're actually hearing people's testimonies, the victims' testimonies, and look at their reality. So the great thing about Radio El Hara is it is essentially a international solidarity building project. Uh, it's a decentralised radio station that not just shares uh, music from the area and kind of international solidarities, but it also does amazing work of education as well. They were part of Documenta uh, in what was called the Lungbung Radio, which was essentially just spreading the idea of the digital commons, meaning everyone has access to a digital space to share and proliferate information. 
And this next next track is by Palestinian rap crew Dam. Uh, introduce you to heavily political music from the Swana region. What's so unique about the music from Dam specifically? Absolutely. So they're actually considered quite uh, controversial in a lot of ways. Oh. So they've been around since like the late 90s. Um, I will say I like their later stuff more when uh, Meister joined the crew. Uh, but essentially, they're known as uh, resistance musicians. Uh, they're quite crass. They're quite uh, forward-spoken in the way they talk about uh, life under occupation, life as uh, Palestinian Arabs in the occupied territories and in the areas that are so-called Israel. Uh, they're very direct and they've started becoming incredibly uh, political in, I guess, their current form after the uh, second intifada. Uh, that's when they really kicked off and kind of started to make this really big international name for themselves as well. Uh, it's quite interesting. So the song I actually chose um, is actually talking about how um, artists are put in this position of having to choose between selling out and funding and actually being quite critical of artists whose politics uh, shift when it's convenient, which I think once again is incredibly relevant to what we're seeing today in the way that people are demanding to see action from artists and celebrities around ceasefire. So the one we're gonna listen to by Dam, Bena Hana Wa Mana, I hope. I didn't butcher that really terribly. <laughs> We're gonna, Wamana. Thank you. We're going to be listening to that one right now. You're, this is Out of the Box on FBI Radio. We're going to chat more right after this. Oh, Keep man. it locked. See you later. واقف عند الحيط ما بتحرك بتنقد اللي بتغني بتنقد اللي برقص ضب جمرك بتحسبنا بالاخر بلا ما تسال اي مشوار بنمرق واحنا بين حنا ومعنا هيضاعت لحنا صفينا لحالنا وطلعنا بلوش يا بندبك مع بعض يا بندبك ببعض وبنتهم القدم وين ما في اصابع على 9 ملم that was Bin Hana Watmana as picked by our guest on Out of the Box this afternoon or however you are tuning in. I'm joined by Isabella Antonu. My name is Kate Zarp. This is Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5 FM. You might also be streaming live on the website fbiradio.com listening on DAB or retrospectively wherever you get your podcasts. If you're unfamiliar with Out of the Box, it's the wonderful interview show here on FBI where we take a deep dive into our guests' record collection and have a chat about the stories behind the music that they love. Izzo, we've made it this far. Congratulations to us. Pat on the back. We've got, you know, 20 more minutes or so talking about music. We're moving on. Were you encouraged to get politically involved when growing up all the time? Actually, no. So I grew up in a house that was political in the sense that we talked about politics, but it wasn't really seen as something to do. Now, I've got a classic like uh, ethnic dad where I don't understand any of his deep law. And I have no idea where he was for deep periods of the 70s and 80s, kicking around the Eastern Mediterranean. So who knows? Um, But I will say, though, uh, it's been kind of a bit of a joy to watch my parents watch me uh, be so actively political and then be so excited. Um, they really dived in headfirst, like 
they've been door knocking with me. They've been flying with me. That's wonderful. It's great. And look, my parents are both like openly very like aggressively left wing. Um, me and them don't disagree on politics at all, which I think helps a lot for, you know, just being raised in a uh, cohesive household in terms of, um, you know, beliefs and actions, which I'm really proud to have come from. Um, they're so on the front foot with it and wanting to learn and wanting to know more. Um, it was actually quite funny. This kind of nice political connection I had with my dad was actually after quite a, an intense experience. So back in 2020, which seems to be the, the kind of pinpoint year for a lot of this, um, I was actually in the central concourse um, after the Black Lives Matter rally um, in which people were kettled and pepper sprayed. I was actually one person who was probably a bit too prepared and had a water bottle filled with uh, water and bicup soda, which is great for washing out eyes. And, pro tip. Yeah, pro tip for anyone who wants to know. And it's less infection risk than milk. Okay. So everyone always says milk. No, actually go bicup soda and you can actually spread it out more. Just a bit of a, a bit of a tip. You didn't hear it Thank from you. me. Um, just your friendly neighbourhood anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but essentially what happened of being caught in that, being pepper sprayed, being kind of like being witness to police violence. Um, once again, I'm very fortunate that that was my first instance of witnessing police uh, brutality when, you know, it makes up people's everyday lives. Um, but after my dad heard about that, he literally gave me his copy of the Communist Manifesto that was printed in the 70s in the USSR and I'm like where did you get this and he just went haha okay and like <laughs> d d deep dad law not on. getting it come on <laughs> like I need more story here um and I mean you've mentioned you know the Black Lives Matter rally specifically the one in 2020 but could you tell me about the first time you went to a rally or protest so my first rally okay it actually was an Invasion Day rally. Mm -hmm. So it was the 26th of January. And in case people aren't aware, uh, those essentially are the community organized uh, rallies and days of defiance and mourning from First Nations communities um, to hold account around what was Invasion Day. Uh, not Australia Day, Invasion Day. Because yep. that has marked the scarring of this continent by colonial powers. And I want to make um, take this time to... Uh, pay my respects to the country that we stand on now and to elders past and present. Um, a lot of my activist work is putting First Nations justice at the forefront. And that often means me standing back and listening to particularly what First Nations matriarchs have to say. Um, it was such a big experience for me because I was just freshly out of high school. Um, and it was up back when uh, they used to have, now they're too big, now they go down to Belmore Park, but they used to be uh, just around the, uh, at the block in Redfern. And that was where my first one was. And it was very, very, very special to me in a way that I felt uncomfortable in a good way. I sat with myself and understood how I had been a beneficiary of this continent's colonialization twice over. First from, you know, my mother's side who uh, were essentially part of the first fleet, like early, early settlers and active colonizers. And then through my father's side, more recent migrants whose, you know, journey here could only be made possible because of the displacement and the stealing of land from First Nations people. Um, yeah, that's why I'm really excited to talk about First Nations music, um, you know, on this big theme of like holding governments to account. And I, I mean, we've kind of been having this conversation the entire time, but I sort of want to attack the question head on. What role does music play for us in political activism? Oh, great question. It's, I guess, multiple things. It's a message carrier. 
it's an education tool. But for me, and I guess for more art as well, not just music, it's also a salve and a community building experience where we can experience and share joy and grief simultaneously and anger. And these are emotions that are often often quite feminized as well and demonized, especially when they come from traditionally marginalized places, especially if they're coming from women of color. They're seen as less than or non-logical. And I think music sits outside the bounds of like, you know, logic and stoicism in a way that really challenges these kind of preconceived notions of what is appropriate. What kinds of stories are told in music made by those who were and still are colonised? It's hard to know fully because there's songs I will never be able to hear because they're not for me. There are traditional uh, hymns and songs and uh, practices and chants that uh, I should not be privy to um, because they're not mine. But I can speak from my own culture's ones uh, in that way. I can speak to the ones I have been privy to, like the amazing work of Barker and Dobby, uh, particularly, who are amazing creators and cultural caretakers, uh, essentially, and their essentially their work being about holding, uh, speaking truth to power. Truth-telling is a big concept we see when it comes around First Nations justice, and the music of artists like them is immensely important in centering First Nations voices at the kind of uh, penultimate point of when it comes to truth-telling and hearing it directly from them. They're two favourites here at the station at FBI Radio. We're going to listen to this track as picked by Izzo right now. It's a collaboration between Dobby and Barker. It's called I Can't Breathe. Uh, you're tuned in to Out of the Box on FBI Radio with me, Kate Sarp. This is I Can't Breathe. We're going to come back right after. Commission. First came the massacres, then came the mission. Then stole the children, then filled the prison. No wonder our people do not trust the system. Over 400, not one conviction. Shame. No justice and no peace. They won't charge. That was a track by Dobby and Barker called I Can't Breathe. As picked by our guest today on Out of the Box, Isabella Antonu is joining me in the studio. My name is Kate Sarp. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 FM. You might also be listening retrospectively to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Izzo, we've chatted for about 50 minutes or so. What a great time. We're in the home stretch officially. And I kind of don't want the conversation to end. No. Can we just be a regular guest slot? Yeah. Is that allowed? We should do the power hour, Izzo and Kate, chatting <laughs> yeah. about politics and music. I think that that needs to happen. I think there's enough content out there to let us do that. Exactly. Like, this is just a small taste. We'll come with required readings every week for people to read before they tune into the show. And it will include my thesis. Thank you, everybody. Yes, I need to will. make those two years worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading it. Send it to me. <laughs> So in 2022, you worked with Documenta 15 on the Lumbung Radio Project. Could you tell me more about its aim? Yeah, so I actually didn't work on the radio project itself. I was one of the exhibiting artists. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I did was supporting Refugee Art Project. Uh, and there was a series of films that we did uh, essentially about uh, Australia's border politics. Right. Um, and I supported a young woman talking about her time on Nauru and looking at the... Um, medical system there and these are all tended out 
uh, systems done by private companies and the way it is just another layer of torture. But the Lung Bung Radio uh, project was a really interesting kind of microcosm of Documenta 15. So Rong Rupa, the Indonesian collective who were the curators uh, for uh, Documenta 15, operate on a principle known as Lung Bung. Um, the short and sweet way to talk about Lung Bung is essentially it's the word for the communal rice storage uh, barn. It is all about the concept of the commons, sharing everything. Uh, the way that manifested in the art practice was they basically got a bunch of art collectives from all around the world, mostly from, uh, you know, the term that a lot of people use, the global south. I don't like that term. I like using the term of uh, countries that have been exploited by colonial nations. It's much more on the nose. Well, it's more direct. It's very yeah. say what you mean and mean what you say mm -hmm. and doesn't really hide behind anything. It actually is talking what happened a uh, bit of truth telling there actually uh, some would say um but essentially um got all these amazing artists funded work from them and then flew them over to uh castle where it's a hundred day art festival um and had people living in what essentially was a communal space and having a communal kitchen where we took care of each other we cooked for one another where we danced and did karaoke uh the Lungbong radio it was a radio project extended of that where uh people's lectures were streamed uh where a series of other radios for stations from around the world radio el haro was just one um shared information uh, playlists, like I said before, lectures, education pieces in a way that actually democratised information from around the world uh, in a way that people probably wouldn't traditionally connect with or stumble across. Uh, so it was a really interesting curatorial uh, experiment and you could so easily just kind of say what you wanted to put on there and put that forward and you know as long as it seemed pretty cool they'd put it on there and we had a lot of uh the artists who were part of documenta um have their work which could be audio like translated in audio format uh streamed through there and i suppose it just goes to show how really the arts isn't a competition it's, it's all about community and supporting each other and I suppose your political career with a focus on ownership and renters' rights sort of fosters this interest as well. Where do you find the intersection between digital commons, the shared communal ownership of online resources and the collective ownership of property? Interesting. I want to say first and foremost, my I see myself as a community organiser beyond everything else. I would even say more so than an activist. An activist is standing up and speaking out, but a community organiser is bringing people into conversation with one another and support and community um, and knowing that we have to work together for a shared future. Uh, the way I see, you know, things like the arts and digital commons is we are not going to, we are not individual creatures. We are not going to survive on our own. We never have. We never will. And there is a attempt to make us forget that uh we talk about you know the coloniality of power um Keanu's work which essentially talks about how capitalism is the tool of coloniality uh that has spread coloniality throughout the globe and has kind of helped it really take root you know the isolating way that you know policy and this way of economic structuring really does um isolate us from ourselves it makes us view each other as competition because we're put in a system where we are, where if one person benefits, it actually is often at the expense of another, um, which we especially do see in, you know, these kind of quote unquote diverse spaces where only one seat at the table. Uh, where I see the where 
um, community organizing and digital commons is we truly have to start building out our own resources to take care of one another. And we're seeing that. Like Purple Pinger's work is a perfect example of like making sure that people warn one another of, uh, you know, dodgy landlords, dodgy real estate agents. Um, when there aren't protections put in by our governments, people will have to start protecting themselves. And how does community radio at its crux sort of reflect these ideas for you? I think it's a perfect example. It's the fact that we're sitting here in conversation together talking about things that, you know what, might not get published anywhere else. The fact that a lot of uh, media and a platform is gatekept in a way that not only waters down a lot of messages, but it waters down who gets to be there as well. We are actually existing in the perfect little microcosm of democratising information, access, uh, celebrating work of other artists who may not get the same platform that we enjoy. Um, the way that we can, you know, just even share space with one another. I think that's incredibly important. And I suppose it all comes to a head with your current role with Democracy in Colour, right? Absolutely. Uh, the work from Democracy in Colour does is an amazing organising um, organisation, I guess that's what we can call it. Hey, uh, why not? Why not? <laughs> you know, don't use the, the word inside its own definition. Nah, who cares? Uh, but the work around, you know, racial and economic justice that we do is built on a principle of community organising, bringing people in conversation with one another, uh, activating people who may not see themselves as inherently politicized and changing conversations and challenging challenging governments and media and that's it for today's episode thank you so much for coming to the studio for chatting with me for the past hour isabella it's truly been a pleasure it's been a joy to be here all of the ways that you can connect with Izzo will be up on the programs page. If you want to go check out her TikTok, maybe read her master's thesis, <laughs> see all the other wonderful projects that she's been involved in. It just has been amazing. Um, you should tune in the same time next week. Emily Elvish is going to have a wonderful guest on the mic. Up next, right after me, is lunch. Please don't go anywhere if you're listening live. And if you're listening retrospectively, I hope you have a wonderful whatever. But right now I'm going to say I hope you enjoy your afternoon. My name is Kate Sarp and this has been Out of the Box. Our final thing, though, that we need to discuss is the last track that you've picked. Uh, it's an artist that you mentioned earlier, Marina Sati. Can you tell me about this track, Yati Pulliam? Absolutely. So Marina Sati is a Greek Sudanese artist. She's a personal favorite of mine. And her work is truly the embodiment of culture and art and the way it can be used to express grief in a very politically powerful way that often isn't really encapsulated in other pieces that we've talked about it today. Um, it's actually taken from an older poem that was about the fall of Constantinople or Constantinople and the displacement that someone feels when they're being forcibly relocated. It's a beautiful piece. It is one of my favourites and it actually encapsulates the way I come to all my politics. Here it is right now. That's it for me. My name is Kate Sarp. This has been Out of the Box on FBI Radio. It's Marina Sati right now. No, I